Hi, I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So, it is the month of January 2022, and uh, all month long, we've been taking a look back at the year of 2021, uh, just reviewing from week to week films uh, that came out in the year 2021. Uh, You may have noticed uh, only I have been speaking uh, thus far, uh, and that's because this is going to be yet another uh, solo episode and recorded very hastily and indeed uh, in one take, uh, very similar uh, to the film uh, that I'm about to review for y'all today. Uh, so again, this is just going to be a Trevor review, so if you're not on board with just hearing one voice uh, talking to himself uh, for the next hour or so, uh, you may want to bail now. But anyway, uh, in keeping with the uh, one-take theme, uh I decided I wanted to use this opportunity of doing a solo review to talk about a movie that I'm I'm all but certain I could not rope uh, Kyle into reviewing with me, being as it is 100% in my wheelhouse and uh, probably not at all within his. And uh, of course, the movie that I'm alluding to here is uh, James Nunn's uh, One Shot from 2021. Uh, That is the title of the film, One Shot. And uh, this, of course, stars my boy, uh, Scott Adkins, uh, who, if you've been listening to the show for any amount of time, uh, you will know by now, uh, I am a huge mark for Scott Adkins. Um, I I absolutely love the man. I love his work. Uh, and he's basically earned that, that rarefied status wherein uh, I will watch, like, literally anything he does, even the... Uh, even the not so good things that he does. <laughs> uh, I'm looking. I can't remember the name of the title off the top of my head, but uh, there's this one uh, Kane Kosugi movie that he made, uh, where, if I remember correctly, the the backstory behind the production of it was that uh, he and uh, Kane Kosugi were just a. Uh, brought in kind of after the fact, like they had shot the damn thing years ago, and it wasn't until like. It wasn't until the the production reached a point where it's like, how the fuck do we sell this thing? Uh, that they reached out to those two and just uh, filmed some additional scenes uh, with them uh, to you know put their faces on the cover and and pad out the runtime with some action beats uh, in an otherwise fairly anemic production. Um, I can't remember the name of that title, but I'm trying to look it up as I'm rambling here. Um, Anyway, it's neither here nor there. Uh, today we're talking about One Shot. Uh, so this film uh, is is pretty special. Uh, I've seen it twice now, uh, and I've enjoyed it uh, twice now. Uh, this is a film that I will very proudly uh, pitch to people uh, when they ask me about like uh, solid action films, uh, recent action films, and um, in particular like military-style action films. Uh, I have a very good buddy of mine uh, who... I mean, he enjoys martial arts cinema like I do, but his his real bread and butter when it comes to the things that make him happy in action movies and whatnot is uh, some good old-fashioned gun fu, uh, some gun kata, if you will. Uh, war movies are kind of his thing. And so uh, the second I saw this movie uh, several months ago, when it when it debuted uh, in the U.S., uh, via I, I think I rented mine via Amazon Prime, and this most recent rewatching, I I just watched it on a... Uh, dvd uh that my girlfriend's parents got me for christmas so that was very kind of them uh, as it afforded me the opportunity to watch it again but the the second i watched this movie i, I texted that buddy of mine i said buddy uh if you want to see some people get shot in the fucking face uh 
and hear some good old-fashioned military jargon, uh, you might enjoy this one. Uh, so this is a movie that I've recommended to many people, and I, I hope uh, anybody who might be interested in this sort of thing runs out and checks it out because it is a very ambitious film, uh, especially considering the resources that the production had. Um, and that that's something that is, keeps me engaged in the world of action and martial arts cinema is uh, finding instances of ambition. Uh, finding instances of a production reaching uh, maybe even further than uh, is sensible to. Um, In this case, uh, not only is the choreography pretty astounding considering the nature of the production, the the one-shot gimmick that we're working from. That's not fair, by the way. It's not a gimmick. It's more of a thesis statement. Um, But yeah, the, the quality of the choreography, taking that into account, is of a very high level of quality and in addition to that um just the the storyboarding process the choreography of uh the transitions from shots and scenes it's all very sharply put together uh this is a very handsome film in many respects um not just not just the throwing of hands and the stabby stabby and the the shooty shooty um it's a it's a movie that actually legitimately surprised me uh, more than a few times uh, throughout its 96 minute runtime but Anyway, as I said, this film is directed by James Nunn and is, of course, headlined by my boy, uh, Scott Adkins. But uh, let's talk a little bit about our our director and our star, because I I think it's always a lot of fun uh, to just review, you know, a little bit of background about uh, some folks um, and their working relationships in particular. Um, More and more as I, you know, watch, enjoy and uh, dissect films, you come to realize that a lot of productions are built on the strength of relationships. Um, And in particular, in the world of action cinema, and in particular, like martial arts cinema, you find that a lot of players are recruited uh, to continually play opposite each other, because like in my mind, and this isn't like a a truism in the industry, but in my mind, I have this thought that, um, you know, if you're gonna, if you're gonna, you know, be trading hands with somebody if you're going to be throwing hands at each other and potentially potatoing one another in the face um it's probably a lot more comfortable to do that with someone you know and have worked with previously than you know continually working with uh wild cards that may or may not have the goods and may or may not know your rhythm and your tendencies as well as some of the other folks you've worked with in the past um but anyway james nunn uh is he's a uh, british uh, director um and he was initially introduced to me, uh, and I'm sure a lot of other folks out there, uh, via Green Street 3, colon, Never Back Down, uh, which came out in 2013. And yes, uh, that is in fact the third of the Green Street Hooligans films. Uh, they did in fact go on to do several direct-to-video sequels to that to that film, that Elijah Wood and Charlie Hunnam film that we indeed reviewed here on Catching Up on Cinema a long time ago, uh, one of our most listened episodes apparently um so i saw i i saw james nunn's work for the first time via that film and, and indeed it's fairly early in his filmography but um he would work with uh, scott adkins no less than two more times uh, following that most recently with one shot but in in the intervening years he also did eliminators um with Stu bennett uh, aka wade barrett uh formerly of the wwe um, I quite enjoyed that as well. Uh, it, it has its moments where its budget rears its ugly head, where you, you can tell it's like, hmm, you know, they didn't have all the money in the world to put this together. Um, but in terms of like 
having a, a fun energy, uh, moving at a fast clip, and it, that that key buzzword, um, ambition. Um, Eliminators did surprise me at a couple of points with the ambition apparent in the the filmmaking, um, not just the martial arts choreography, but also just the filmmaking. Uh, in particular, there's a sequence on a cable car um, that's about like. I want to say like a minute and a half, you know, 90 seconds of unbroken, uh, just one take uh, martial arts choreography between Scott Atkins and I believe three or four dudes uh, in this cable car. And it, I believe it's shot um, in, in like a 360 format, but uh, it's a solid little bit of action cinema um, that they did not have to do. Um, but they decide, hey, you know, let's make a one out of this. Uh, a one would be... Uh, the the lingo for a a uh, an action beat uh, conducted in one take without cuts that is um, that was pretty impressive but the the big thing that impressed me with Eliminators is that uh, uh, Stu Bennett uh, that would be Wade Barrett uh, serves as like the chief antagonist uh, not actually the chief antagonist he's more like the muscle uh, the pursuer the Terminator esque figure throughout that film. And uh, he has a couple of run-ins with Scott Adkins in the film. And the whole time, I, you know, my my action fanatic brain is going, when are we going to get to the fireworks factory? Because it's like we're, we're having these minor skirmishes. They're fine, but they're not blowing my hair back. Um, and then when you get to the finale, if memory serves, the way it plays out is like we do like a nice little scrap. And that's like, well, that was nice. But, you know, I really I got to have more. And then like. Stu Bennett just like shows up for like another fight like immediately after that like there's just this like one little lull with the action that it's like oh okay they they were hiding the second half of that fight behind a little bit of a, a lull uh, so thankfully they they delivered on that end and for the most part I walked away from Eliminators pretty happy um, I will point out that uh, apparently. Uh, James Nunn continued his working relationship with WWE Studios, as I do see on his IMDb, uh, the Marine 5, colon, Battleground, from 2017, as well as the Marine 6, colon, Close Quarters, from 2018, which, uh, if memory serves, and this is me um, not looking it up, but just, like, trying to search my brain uh, for images. Like, I seem to remember the cover art for this one making my eyebrow go up because it had a... I think it was The Miz and Shawn Michaels and maybe like a Becky Lynch or something, but definitely Shawn Michaels. And I was like, oh, wow, did not see that coming. I have not seen any of the Marine films beyond the first one, uh, which is the film that I, I refer to as the the Invincible Cop Car movie because there's a car chase fairly early on in that movie where there's a, a police cruiser that just gets riddled with bullets for like, 20 minutes and for some reason it just it doesn't it doesn't skip a beat it just keeps rolling it's fucking hilarious in fact that whole movie like premise included is utter utter bonkers hilariousness um the marine's terrible but it, it makes me smile um anyway back to one shot uh so the basic concept of this movie um is basically we're trying to conduct a feature length action film uh under the premise of delivering seamless cuts um, so basically there are indeed cuts involved in in the construction of the film there was you know some measure of post-production editing um, largely in the form of like effects work and color grading and whatnot but also we did have to stitch together numerous shots it's done 
incredibly seamlessly. Like there's only a, a handful of instances where it's readily apparent uh, that there was a cut. Um, they do some really clever things, and and a lot of what makes it work uh, in terms of selling the illusion is uh, just the sheer volume, uh, the sheer number of styles of transitions they use. Um, if it was just the same trick over and over and over again, like the classic trick is to uh, glide the camera behind a, a wall or a barrier of some sort or uh, point the camera at a static object, um, i.e. like an object on the floor or, or something of that nature, and then do like a whip pan. Also, a whip pan is also a, a kind of a trick of the trade. Um, they do everything and then some. And, uh, there's some tri- there's some tricks in here that you don't see as often that I'll I'll definitely point out. Um, but apparently, uh, this project uh, has been stewing not necessarily in production hell, um, but it was kind of shelved at one point. Um, and apparently, this this project began life about six years ago with James Nunn coming up with a script um, that, <laughs> that apparently. Uh, involved cannibals and Navy SEALs on a prison island um, who are uh, forced to, like, uh, conduct melee combat against the uh, the cannibals. Um, so he, I, I listened to an interview with the fella, and uh, he did say that um, that was the early version of the script, and uh, the producers, um, it the producers changed, like, the production was, was handed off to many producers at many different points but um eventually it was decided um we need we need to make this a more conventional action film in order in order for like the audience to grab hold of what we're trying to sell to them so that that idea was ditched in favor of just like a straightforward military actioner um so i'll just uh explain the the premise here uh in fact here let me just read the uh, plot summary normally this would fall to Kyle, but I'll do my best here. Uh, and in fact, I'm going to cheat uh, because I'm straight up just going to read this shit. Normally, we try to come up with it on the fly, and usually it results in comedy. But um, this is just me, folks, so don't expect a whole lot of laughs uh, I, because I don't really have anyone to play off of. Uh, so, One Shot from 2021, directed by James Nunn. An elite squad of Navy, Navy SEALs on a covert mission to transport a prisoner off a black CIA black site island prison are trapped when insurgents attack while trying to rescue the same prisoner. Doesn't get much simpler than that, but uh, thankfully the film does have some measure of depth to it. Uh, in fact, quite a bit of uh, impressive levels of depth from here, from time to time. Uh, and I'll be sure to point those out, but um, I apologize if this is not as a uh, detailed a review as you might be hoping for. Um, but uh, the way this film is constructed, uh, it moves at a, at a breakneck pace uh, because of uh, the style of editing. Uh, the shots are incredibly long. Scenes are incredibly long. Um, and I think it's very, very important to note, uh, James Nunn himself uh, went on record saying this was shot in 20 days. Um, and in fact, I believe it was shot, uh, according to him, uh, uh, at a military base in Suffolk. Um, and my eyes could be lying to me, but I seem to, I seem to recall spotting some landmarks here on this military base that they filmed at that, uh, that looked very similar to the Stu Bennett film, uh, I Am Vengeance Retaliation, colon, Retaliation. Uh, I could be wrong. It could just be like a, a British military base look or something, but, um, I don't know. I, I spotted some some aspects of the terrain that looked very familiar to that. 
Um, and in fact, uh, that movie apparently has some connections uh, to this one in the form of its uh, supporting cast members. And I wouldn't be surprised at all if some of the crew members were involved as well. But anyway, our film uh, begins on a helicopter, and we're introduced uh, to our team of Navy SEALs, who, have, of course, is headlined by Scott Adkins, um, as well as uh, Ashley Green, who is a government agent of some sort. Um, I believe she might be a CIA or NSA. I, I forget if it's if it's disclosed. But in addition to that, we also have Emmanuel Imani as Brandon, uh, Dino Kelly as Danny Dietler, and uh, Jack Parr as Lewis Ash. Um, I think it's very funny to note that both uh, Dino Kelly and uh, Walid Elgadi, uh, who, pl- who are p- portrays uh, Amin Mansour later on in the film, apparently the two of them have uh, a decent amount of credits uh, serving as voice actors uh, for animation and video games. Uh, I thought that was really cute to note. Um, anyway, we have an early instance in the film in this helicopter ride where uh, we get uh, the introduction introduction of a prop so we see that ashley is a little uh i don't know tense uh, she looks very uncomfortable apparently this is the first helicopter ride with her uh and we have our pretty pretty you know boilerplate uh military guy jargon going on between our team of seals here but we have this moment here where they run into some chop in the helicopter and she drops her file on the floor and we see that not only does she have some papers with her she also appears to have an ultrasound um and everybody in the everyone in the chopper sees it they're just like hmm interesting um and the assumption both on the part of the viewer and uh, our seals uh, is that perhaps this woman is pregnant and perhaps she's maybe a little queasy or something but anyway it's assumed that this ultrasound uh belongs to her personally because she does like stow it in her back pocket but um what's interesting about the way this scene is uh constructed and i could be wrong here um i believe this was shot in a stationary helicopter that was already landed um on the on the base that would that will serve as the the sole setting of the entire film um i believe they shot the interiors of the chopper while the chopper was still grounded uh, and then they used stagehands and whatnot uh, to to shake the chopper whenever they needed to do that for whatever bits of dialogue uh, could be complemented by that. And then there's a couple of instances where the, the camera pans over uh, to look out through the cockpit and we see an island on the horizon. Um, and those are very clearly blue screened, which, again, leads me to believe this was stationary chopper. Um, and then when they open the doors, there's a there's like a lighting change, which uh, leads me to believe either they they had some sort of uh, bounce board or portable light source, um, and maybe the doors were just open the whole time because it, it it's pretty cramped in a chopper. It'd be difficult to fit a camera crew in there in addition to all the seals and whatnot. Um, but then the scene continues, um, and we get introduced to the style of cinematography that will be you know, pervasive throughout the entire film. And a lot of that involves some very highly coordinated um, and tasteful uh, focus pulling. Uh, so we have a lot of instances of like 360 camera work where uh, the camera operator will circle around a subject, but then uh, just the, the timing and the choreography of, of when the focus changes from subject to sh- subject and how the camera is coordinated with the movement of the actors and the, and the framing is, is, is assembled uh it's really incredible to watch um it it really serves as like a a strong uh 
promotion for the idea of the camera operator and um, just the choreography of the camera movement itself. Um, in terms of the construction of action, um, it they're almost like a member of of the quote like stunt crew. Uh, it's it's really incredible to watch. I'm doing a very poor job of trying to explain it, but uh, you'll know it when you see it. But uh, it's at this point that we're introduced uh, to another major player in the cast, uh, who is uh, Terrence Maynard, who apparently is enjoying a, a tenure on uh, the Netflix uh, The Witcher series at the moment. Um, <laughs> it could just be me, but um, I got some uh, British Tony Todd vibes from him. Uh, something about the uh, timber, uh, or is it timbre, of his voice. Um, and just his, I don't know, he, he has a certain flavor to him that makes me think of Tony Todd, but uh, I have seen him in interviews, and uh, he is very British. Uh, so, yeah, I think of him as British Tony Todd. Anyway, he's a little bit slimy right off the bat, and uh, he serves as kind of like our base liaison, and so he guides us through the camp. And we see that, yes, this is indeed a, a base, but it's also a prison camp of sorts, and it's an island on top of that, so it's it's remote. Um, and you can think of this as a bit of a black site, I guess. Um, and mind you, we still have not, we have yet to have a noticeable cut at this point, and we're at least five, six minutes in. Um, anyway, he guides us through the camp, and now it's uh, Scott Adkins and Ashley Green. Uh, walking through the halls of of the base and we're introduced uh, to another fella who occupies a space on the uh, poster art for the film uh, depending on which version of the poster or the dvd cover art you your uh, your region gets um, uh, the u.s cover art for this film for one shot i'm not gonna lie I, I very much enjoy this film and i very much enjoy james nunn and scott adkins work but uh, this cover art is no bueno uh, we have Ryan Phillippe front and center brandishing a handgun because uh, I, I, I make this joke with Brad uh, from the Cinema Speak podcast all the time. Uh, if you put a gun on the cover and an American flag, um, your sales uh, your sales figures will, will automatically double uh, depending on how you market the thing. Like if you put that in the red box with an American flag, a Twilight gal, and a pistol on the cover, whoa, you're going to do just fine. But um, Ryan Phillippe is positioned in the cast uh, as perhaps like based on his his position on the cover art you would think that he's a much more important figure in the in the proceedings than he actually is um his role was his role was the the one uh that i i wasn't quite sure i how i felt about um something about his position in the cast and his line delivery just I don't know. It just it just didn't click on the same level as everyone else. Uh, that could just be me and maybe my 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 bias. Uh, I've never really been a Ryan Phillippe fan, um, but from a utilitarian standpoint, from a plot utility standpoint, uh, his character is necessary uh, to enhance the drama and whatnot. Um, but his introduction to us right off the bat is that he's a he's kind of a prick, um, and he's a stickler for paperwork, and it turns out. Uh, Ashley Green's character, Zoe Anderson, uh, is here uh, to pick up a prisoner by the name of Amin Mansour. Uh, basically, we're trying to do a prisoner transfer, and Ryan Phillippe's character is droning on about how, you know, we uh, we can't do that without the necessary paperwork. I wasn't informed of this. And she continually emphasizes how time is of the essence. It doesn't seem to register with him. Um, 
but we also get the introduction of a another visual element uh, a minor prop uh, things like this that i appreciate in filmmaking uh is a uh, as soon as you walk into the office uh, the camera never fixates on it uh, but if you actually like look around the surroundings you'll notice that there's like liquor bottles in the in the corner at one point he pulls out uh, some nicorette gum um and more importantly though you see in the corner he has a uh, photo of himself in like a marine dress uniform with his wife uh, put a pin in both of those things because they both both of those elements actually do come into play uh, in terms of how the film progresses from there but uh, long story short uh she doesn't get what she wants ryan Phillippe says like go pound sand um however she is permitted to visit with the prisoner uh so our buddy uh terrence maynard as a tom shields by the way uh, he walks us out uh, to where the prisoners being hold, held, rather, and uh, I could be wrong, but um, I suspect that our first proper cut in the film happens around this time when we're being taken into the prison hold prisoner holding area. Uh, there's a change in the lighting um, because we're we're going from outdoors to indoors. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if maybe some some form of cut was hidden in here. Um, but I can't be positive on that. But I, I detected no less than six, seven minutes of just like uncut opening. Um, and one thing that's really fascinating to, to think about when you when you think about the the nature in which this film was constructed is uh, like when, when your cuts are that long, um, everybody, everybody has to fall in line like everybody has to be performing the whole time because the the camera work is very energetic and more importantly we don't have the benefit of of falling back on coverage on falling back on on edits to to hide poor performances or uh hiccups in delivery or things of that nature like like if say for instance you have a dialogue scene where three or four or different people are speaking and you have a take of that uh of that like 10 minute scene uh where two two out of the four people knock it out of the park um that that's what you got uh and the same problem persists where every time you film that scene um you can't just slip in additional shots uh to to like cherry pick every every single actor's uh best moments or best performances you have to just take the one version of that of that scene that you captured and just lean on that one and or not even lean on that one just accept that that's what you got um so i would imagine this this production could be potentially nerve-wracking at times um largely because you're you're handicapping yourself in a lot of ways in terms of um discarding a lot of the the tools that the filmmaking permits you and, and editing permits you um so yeah, when when you have like a ten minute stretch of movie where any hiccup along the way, um, you potentially have to just stomach that or just just run with it. Uh, being as you only have twenty days to to shoot the entire thing, it's got to be a, a very tense atmosphere on set. Although I did hear like uh, in interviews with the director that uh, no, apparently uh, it was a very enjoyable process. Um, apparently everybody stepped up to the challenge and was very excited. Uh, to give it a go because this is somewhat of an unprecedented thing uh, at least in terms of this style of action movie uh, in fact I'll, I'll just like pause for a second to just 
talk for a little bit about the idea of oneers and and like one take cinema because this is this is a trend that we're we're in the middle of it. I'm not saying that like that's not a pejorative. Like it like it is a thing that always carries an air of prestige to it just because of the known difficulty and in, in not only attempting but actually achieving it. Um, but we're seeing a lot of these lately, like within the past decade or so. Um, I haven't seen it personally. I haven't seen any of them personally, honestly. Like uh, One Cut of the Dead was only a few years ago. That would be a Japanese production, which uh, I don't know if it was actually one cut or if it was sti- stitched together in post uh, to look like one, but that, w- that was the mission statement behind that film. Uh, we also had 1917 not that long ago. Again, have not seen it personally, but I know that that was the thesis statement uh, behind uh, putting that film together. And it was done exceedingly well, as far as I understand. Um, I think Birdman was uh, a while ago, like 2013 maybe. Um, But that also uh, was constructed in such a way as it it looks like a singular action uh, or a single take, rather. Um, But not only that, from a pure action standpoint, like I could be talking directly out of my ass, but... uh, Oneers, like one take action scenes, are something that like everybody who who works in that world uh, they take pride in participating in. Um, and I, again, I could be talking directly out my ass, but um, the first instance I can recall of a oneer, like really, like specifically an action sequence or martial arts sequence, rather, um, really kind of putting its foot down and saying, look at, look at me, look at what we did, um, was a Tom Yong-gung, uh, or The Protector, as it was released here in the U.S. Uh, that would be the Tony Ja movie from Thailand. Um, there's the staircase sequence in that film uh, that I believe was about five minutes of unbroken action. And at the time, uh, in the mid-2000s, uh, that was mind-blowing. I remember being so excited about that. Um, like, and every everybody who who is obsessed with action and martial arts cinema, like myself, um, at the time, were, they they were just enthralled. Like, like that was incredible. Um, again, I'm not positive. I don't know the history at 100, percent but in my mind, that jumps out as maybe the first instance where some where a film uh, went out of its way to to conduct a martial arts sequence of of significant length in that fashion. Um, but in years since we've, we've seen that revisited and, and reiterated upon like um, one of the more uh, obvious examples, one of the more mainstream examples that comes to mind is uh, the uh, Netflix uh, daredevil show. Um, I believe it was a, an example, not a true one uh in that it was stitched together uh numerous shots were stitched together in such a way as to look like a single take. Um, the Tom Young-Gung one was a legitimate one uh, but that one, uh, the Daredevil one, that would be the hallway fight scene from the first season, maybe even the, like the first or the se- I think it was the second episode. Um, and then another one that comes to mind in, again, in fairly recent years was a uh, uh, Creed uh, Ryan Coogler's Creed had a, a boxing sequence in the middle of the film uh, that was legitimately like two, I think maybe, yeah, probably like two minutes of unbroken action. It, I I want to say that was a legit one with maybe some uh, post-production involved in like applying 
sweat and blood from from like blows exchanged and whatnot and maybe some additional post-production for like blurring faces and and head head turns when when punches didn't didn't quite sell as they ought to like live on the set um but i believe that was about like a two two and a half minute sequence where we see michael b jordan um walk out to the ring and conduct pretty much the entire fight uh, in one take and that was very impressive um and it continues to be a very impressive uh undertaking uh in the world of action cinema so when a movie like one shot comes along where uh not only is it uh constructed in such a way as to look like 90 minutes of uh unbroken action um it's like highly choreographed like like action as spectacle as opposed to like say like a 1917 which i would it's a war movie i would imagine you know it's it's more action as tension action as drama Whereas this has like some crowd pleasing elements to it that for me personally are are incredibly welcome. Um, I just think of those things as two very different styles of choreography. Um, anyway, I'll get back on track, I promise. <laughs> but anyway, we're introduced uh, to Amin Mansoor and he's strung up from the ceiling and they're they're blaring. Uh, they're doing like some psychological torture on him by blaring like heavy metal music and whatnot. And, uh, they wake him up with some fire hoses and, uh, immediately we see that Zoe Anderson, Ashley Green's character, uh, has a different approach to how she wants to, uh, reach out to this fella. Cause apparently they've been interrogating him. They've been torturing him, um, as evidenced by the high quality, uh, makeup effects that they've uh, applied all over his face and body. Um, and, I, I do need to compliment that. Um, some of the cuts and bruises on him uh, actually do look very, very good by any standard. Um, but her approach is, uh, she mentions this at one point to Scott Atkins in the scene that follows immediately after this initial contact with Mansoor, that um, if you if you want something from somebody, you have, you, you have to find out what they want, and then you need to leverage that. Um, but anyway, she tries to speak to him not torture him she offers him water she tries to speak to him and she informs him that he is he is a man without a country at this point he was apparently a british national uh that was in transit and picked up by u.s officials because uh his citizenship status was revoked by every country he may potentially belong to so he's he's a man he's a ghost of a human being at this point um anyway things don't go uh, as as she'd like them to, and uh, Mansoor has a bit of a flip out, uh, so she takes off in a huff, and uh, this is where she has her little exchange with Scott Adkins and uh, the other seals outside. Um, and there's this really neat trick with the cinematography here, where we go from uh, following her, uh, the camera is is firmly fixated on her from the moment we get out of the chopper uh, to going to talk to Ryan Phillippe to talking with Mansoor. Um, and as soon as she is done speaking with Scott Adkins and breaks off to go back to speaking with Mansoor, um, the camera doesn't follow her and it instead stays fixated on Scott Adkins. And uh, there's this really neat moment where just the the camera very selectively stays with the subject that's most relevant to the plot proceedings. And in this case, uh, we got some stuff coming up on the outside of the facility. Uh, so we have some chit-chat between all the seals um but then just out of view and uh, uh the camera like 
pans over to show us exactly what the seals are looking at. Uh, we see there's a commotion at the front gate, um, and there's an unexpected truck delivery. And uh, there's a very highly tense sequence where uh, there's a lot of shouting at the at the security gate. Um, and then, wouldn't you know it, a bunch of bad guys with assault rifles jump out of the back of the truck and just start shooting up the place. Um, and what's really interesting about this initial attack here is that um, losses are are taken on both sides. So the the guards stationed at the base are are getting capped left and right, as are as are the guys hopping out of the truck. Um, but what's interesting about the way this initial phase of the action is conducted is um, initially, like from the moment uh, the guys hop out of the back of the truck and start shooting everybody, um, the camera breaks off from the seals and the guards and actually uh trails behind uh the people invading the base uh and it's a it's filmed from a very intimate angle largely from over the shoulder uh, i'm not gonna lie i wouldn't be surprised if james nunn uh has played a video game or two uh in his lifetime because there are instances in uh not only the choreography of the camera movements and the action um but also just like the the plot progression that feel somewhat video gamey like different chapters of of this narrative feel like missions in a in a video game or something where it's like somebody is tasked with going to some place to grab something or talk to some person and get to some place um it could just be me reaching but it, it i i've been playing video games since the cradle so this was something that like maybe i'm projecting but that's that's kind of what i got but Anyway, we spend a decent chunk of time, several minutes, um, following these these apparent terrorists uh, storming storming the island, um, and seeing them take losses and whatnot. And then, very deftly, the perspective switches to uh, showing the seals combating them. Uh, so uh, Scott Adkins and his cohorts uh, step up to defend the base, in addition to the you know the guard station there. Um, and we have some very sensible, um, so very. Uh, logical uh, choreography here of of uh basically like rifle combat uh between all these soldiers here so there's a lot of radio chatter there's a lot of uh signaling whenever one another are uh changing magazines or moving and the objective here is to get ashley and uh mansoor uh out of harm's way uh, so we're continually falling back while continually uh firing back at at the invaders um, and it's all conducted very solidly. Uh, it's it's deftly choreographed. And by the way, um, I haven't mentioned it, but uh, Tim Mann uh, was brought on uh, as choreographer. I don't know if he can if he did all of the choreography. He most certainly did the martial arts choreography, of which there is not uh, too much of in this film. This is mostly a shooty shooty movie, uh, occasionally a stabby stabby movie, and very seldom a punchy punchy movie. Um, he most certainly did the stabby stabby and the punchy punchy. I'm not positive how much he was involved with the shooty shooty part of it. Uh, but Tim Munn, I bring him up because, uh, he and Scott Adkins have worked together so many times. Uh, they're, they're like attached to the hip these days. Um, and Tim Munn just has this, a uh, wonderful ability to, I don't know, push, push people, uh, to the best of their ability. Um, he can get a lot out of people. And this is something that I've, I've, always been keen on pointing out uh, to folks that maybe aren't as well-versed in the world of action and martial arts cinema as myself is that, you know, being a, being an amazing performer really is an asset, but uh, 
in a lot of cases, uh, you, you also need an amazing choreographer. You also need an amazing coordinator and an ambitious director to truly get the most out of those people. Uh, because Scott Adkins is fucking phenomenal. <laughs> like, like he he truly is essentially in a class of his own when it comes to action and martial arts. And indeed, his acting ability is is pretty solid these days. He's act, like he's a legitimately captivating screen presence. Uh, he's the total package, uh, as Lex Luger would say. Um, but if you really, really, really want to see the best that Scott Adkins can do, and his best is quite a bit. Um, you need to have him working with the best. Um, and I, it always pains me to see exceedingly talented performers, um, I don't know, not, not get pushed. Uh, because if you want to get the, be- if you want to get the most out of these people, uh, a lot of times they do need a little nudge here and there. They need to be tested. And it's projects like this that make me excited for Scott Atkins in his, in this phase of his career, because, um, God damn, man, he's, he's had a hell of a run, um, he and not only that he continues to strive for greater and greater heights um that's that's one of the things that makes him like a a clear favorite to be on you know the mount rushmore of martial arts stars is that he his his ambition his his need to strive for more and ask more of himself and and diversify the types of projects he takes on uh has never ceased um and indeed in in 2021 um, and in going on into 2022 and 23, he's uh, he's continuing to reach. Um, I am so goddamn excited for for where he's at with it, like in his career right now. Um, when he was initially announced uh, to be part of the cast for John Wick Four, uh, Hagakure, I think is the subtitle for that film. Uh, oh my god, I was just over the moon because I was like, it's about fucking time man <laughs> um and not only that it's like we get him we get donnie yen who he has worked with before and we also have marco zoror who's apparently playing potentially like the big bad for that movie who again he has worked with before it's like I- i've been wanting i've been wanting him to be more main like i've been wanting him to have more mainstream acknowledgement uh pretty much since i initially became enamored with him and his his career um way back in the day when uh, I saw a commercial of him doing the Giver kick uh, for Undisputed Two, um, uh, and I think it's I think he's at the precipice of of truly having that. And I think I think once he once he has his his uh, I don't know big biggest mainstream moment in the form of John Wick Four, and uh, I, I think maybe some directing uh, might be in his future, but. Um, yeah, it's projects like this, like like looking looking at all the things that he could do. It's like, you know, there's lots of people who like have signature kicks or have have a certain look, like, you know, like a Steven Seagal ponytail or something that's like you can keep playing the hits, you can keep playing everybody's favorites forevermore, but at some point uh that's if that's not okay with you, you got to reach for more and uh not every actor could have been capable of of truly carrying out a project like this film one shot. And I think Scott Adkins was, a was the only choice, especially considering his background of working with James Nunn, um, the, the precision and the ability to perform, um, action beats, uh, sandwiched between like five to 10 minutes of dialogue scenes, uh, again, in one take, not just everyone could do that. 
Uh, so um, it, it's really cool uh, to see to see him take like step up to the challenge. Um, anyway, um, one of our seals is a uh, shot um, during this initial retreat. So I mean, there's there's only four seals trying to hold off uh, a seemingly unlimited supply of goons running at them. Uh, and this is, of course, Ash, uh, who is played by Jack Parr. Um, and one by one, all the seals continually pick him up. And uh, the earnestness in the acting here is is really incredible, where uh, he's he's been shot. He's, his lung has been punctured, punctured uh, by the bullet. And uh, I want to say that uh, this fellow, Jack Parr, um, potentially was hired uh, strictly because of his ability to die convincingly. Because he doesn't have a super dense filmography, and indeed he's he's kind of just like the funny guy uh, during the early stages of this film. Um, but sure enough, he he passes away very quickly here um, after uh, our seals and Ashley uh, Green, that is, um, managed to escape uh, to a back office. Um, and holy fucking shit, this is this was the first instance of me recognizing that oh shit this isn't just a, a gimmicky one-shot action film like this actually there's some like there's some of that acting shit going on here because uh hats off to jack parr um his death scene while somewhat evocative of that uh that gruesome sequence in black hawk down where i think it was tom hardy's uh trying to chase the uh uh artery uh in one of his compatriots uh bodies uh to to like seal the wound uh, to stop the bleeding um while this sequence is evocative of this i mean come on man jack parr manages to get some tears out while he's like choking out his last breath since god atkins is cradled over him and mo thank fucking god we don't get a uh, don't die on me at any point in this film um i'll never forget that line in punisher Warzone. like as soon as i heard ray stevenson say that i was like oh shit i mean that that don't get me wrong i i adore that movie it, it's it's trash but it's trash that makes me smile um but that line and in particular that delivery just always just makes me chuckle just don't die on me it's like oh man come on that's the most cliche thing in in anything vaguely war film-esque but um anyway yeah uh Ash dies here on the table, and everybody's uh, secured in this back office. Well, not super secured. Uh, we're in a back office here, uh, like a server room, essentially, on the base. Uh, all of our main characters, so that would be Tom Shields, uh, that would be Terrence Maynard, the actor, and uh, Zoe Anderson, Ashley Green, the actress, um, as well as Mansoor and the Seals. Um, and we get wise to... Uh, everybody's watching... Uh, what all the terrorists are doing outside in the yard and it looks like they're freeing all the prisoners and arming them and it's at this point that uh, Zoe Anderson uh, spills the beans about what's going on with this Mansoor figure and uh, apparently Mansoor's uh, son uh, was killed in a drone strike uh, by the U.S. government the U.S. military that is um, I believe he was supposed to be collateral damage um, well, not supposed to be, but he was. His death was the result of collateral damage. Um, but apparently, his company uh, specializes in the disposable disposal of medical equipment, uh, which involves uh, disposing of nuclear materials. Um, so, I guess the idea here is that uh, terrorists are 
uh, like approached him after they came to know that his son had been killed by the U.S. military. Um, and so in a moment of weakness and anger and grief, uh, he agreed uh, to use his company uh, to help them to obtain these nuclear materials. So apparently they're trying to uh, manufacture a dirty bomb and get it into Washington, D.C. and detonate it there. Uh, so the stakes are quite high. Um, I can't remember if it happens precisely in this scene. Um, however, I will note that uh, uh, <laughs> Ashley Green actually legitimately says the phrase one shot. He's our one shot uh, to fix this thing. Um, so her reasoning here is that they need to get him out of the base. They need to return him to Washington, D.C. so she can uh, interview him, not not necessarily inter- like interrogate him. Um, but he's Mansoor is the key uh, to resolving this dirty bomb situation and preventing the loss of many, many lives. And by the way, I will point out, I'm not a political person, so there's there's a lot of like heavy-handed political text, not subtext in this film that I'm not going to get into, but there are a handful of mentions of, of 9-11. At one point, uh, Terrence Maynard's character actually says, this is another Benghazi. I'm not going to lie, that made me cringe a little bit, but, you know, that's not exactly why we're here. We're not here necessarily for the dialogue. Uh, so moving on. Anyway, uh, we're locked down. We don't have a way out of this office. And two two of our remaining SEALs, so we're down a man, so we're down to just three, including Scott Atkins. Uh, two of them are posted uh, to defend this, uh, this uh, back office here, as well as the agents therein and Mansoor. Um, but we need a way to call for help we need to call in air support or uh transportation of some sort uh and there's a some sort of jamming going on so a communications array needs to be recalibrated uh, but the only way to do that is uh manually at the comms station uh which is on the other side of the camp which is uh not safe to get to uh so by the way uh, one of our fellas uh dino kelly as a uh, danny dietler um, who has he's like the DMR man essentially uh, he uh, he actually eats a bullet in the side of the head and uh, we have a moment where Scott Atkins patches him up uh, it's a pretty it's a pretty tense moment because uh, he <laughs> I, I actually kind of love the bit where he he eats the bullet in the side of the head and he falls down and he's just like you got fucking shot in the head <laughs> it's like yeah yeah you did bud but uh, I need you to like get up and I uh, keep guarding keep guarding this hallway and uh by golly he manages to do that uh it's a tense moment but anyway we have to go back to more dialogue and uh eventually uh it's discovered that uh we need to recalibrate the communications array uh so scott adkins uh is directed to a an air vent in the back of the room by uh tom shields uh and so basically he has to go uh solid snake uh, his way to the other side of the camp. Um, this is where I say I, I couldn't help but think of video games while I was watching this because this this whole sequence of Scott Adkins sneaking out out of an air vent uh, to get to the other side of the camp whilst stabbing people uh, made me think of any number of stealth action games I've played uh, throughout my lifetime of gaming, be it Tenchu, uh, Metal Gear Solid, or uh, Splinter Cell, any of that shit, all that good shit. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of stabby stabby action here that happens, but, um, I will note that, uh, I believe, um, I saw this on the very brief, um, making of package that they had on the DVD. Um, 
I believe um, they may have used a technique. Uh, I think it's called onion skinning. Now, see, this is a technique I've seen employed in uh, the uh, shooting, uh, not so much editing, but the shooting of uh, stop-motion animation films. Um, I want to say they employed that technique for, for matching shots. Um, so what what they're doing here is basically um, the viewfinder or, or whatever source that they're they're viewing the, the captured footage from uh, on the set uh, displays the last captured image um, in a semi-transparent fashion. So the idea is you can see what you what the conclusion of your previous shot was um, and then use that as a guide to where you need to pick up the next one. Um, I'm almost positive this is what they did to do the uh, the vent sequence, which is really cool. Uh, it's it, I'm n- I'm not even talking about action here. I'm just talking about cinema <laughs> filmmaking. Um, I love this. Uh, so what we have here is a, a a bit where Scott Adkins pulls the grating off of a vent, um, and then he slides into the vent, and the camera person uh, is is pushing back like like following him as he heads down the vent and it's my understanding that there's like a slight change in the lighting here when the only image on the screen is scott adkins face filling the whole frame i want to say that they they did a morph essentially they spliced two shots in plain sight in before your very eyes um when he was like half when he was just getting into the vent um, and then the following shot, I'm guessing the the vent cover was already off the back. And instead of trying to cram another human being into the vent ahead of him, I think they just held the camera um, and then used some sort of lighting trick to, to give the impression that uh, he, he went from in the vent to outdoors. Um, I'm not doing a very good job of explaining it, but when you see it and you really put your thinking cap on and think about the logistics of how it was done, I appreciate it. I like filmmaking. It makes me happy. Um, anyway, Scott Adkins uh, gets outside, um, and so he's on his way to the radar dish, essentially, uh, and he starts stabbing fools, but not before we take a, a minute to have a fucking heavy dramatic beat and uh, also a incredible introduction to essentially the chief antagonist of this film. Uh, so this, uh, this moment is preceded by Scott Adkins taking cover and uh, observing from afar, and uh, we have this gentleman wearing a uh, Tom Hardy's Bane from uh, The Dark Knight Rises coat. Um, and indeed, I, I can't help but see some of that performance transposed onto this performance. However, I don't believe it was referenced. I think it was just maybe this this fella's natural way of being. I seriously doubt that he intentionally went out of his way to to, to mimic any other performance that's ever existed. I think it's just happenstance um but the coat his wardrobe definitely made me think of that but anyway uh the chief antagonist of this film is uh played by jess liaudin uh who is a, a french uh mixed martial artist uh wrestler and uh kickboxer um he as far as i understand his tenure he was in the ufc by the way uh, as far as i understand his tenure in the ufc was lengthy but i don't want to say it was entirely like it wasn't a bombastic run, but he was in there for a long time, and he he definitely fought uh, a pretty wide range of opponents. Um, I think maybe at welterweight and middleweight. But anyway, French fella, uh, he plays uh, Hakim Charef or Sharef. Um, 
and holy shit, he blew me away with his acting ability. Uh, I truly think that uh, he has a lot of cool stuff ahead of him uh, in his career, uh, his, his burgeoning career as a both an actor and a martial art a screen fighter, if you will. Um, he's already got some pretty big credits uh, under his belt. Uh, most notably, um, if memory serves, uh, his, he has a like unmistakable look to him. Uh, it's an incredible look, by the way. Um, if memory serves, I think he actually he has already worked with Donnie Yen via the movie uh, Big Brother. Um, he's he's featured in one of, one of like the two or three big punch up sequences in that film, and he acquitted himself pretty well as far as I recall. But um, he's served as like a stunt person on numerous like large large budget Hollywood films. Um, but it's it's only this film that I can think of, and and glancing over his filmography that I think allows for him to truly be an actor and holy fucking shit he is good like like he has some moments of this movie that are really incredible like he blew me away and uh i don't i don't know what what his acting method is maybe it's just he has a natural intensity and earnestness to him uh that that just works but um combination of the the french accent and just his physicality uh man uh this this guy really does have the good so i really hope he uh, does some more just straight up acting i mean any roles he gets i any roles he has offered to him i hope have punching involved uh because he he also has a knack for that as well uh maybe even more so but as just a screen presence uh and intimidating personage on film uh he is very very solid um Anyway, he's introduced to us by the camera uh, pulling away from Scott Adkins, observing from afar, and we go up to observe the action with this this character, Hakim. And uh, he's just asking soldiers that are like, posed on their knees, like, who are you? And I don't know if he's searching for a distinct answer, but like, regardless of what it might be, he puts a bullet in all of their heads. And he has this truly awesome, like, awful bad guy moment where uh, this poor woman played by Alana Maria, uh, who was seen earlier in the film, uh, fleeing, uh, the initial invasion, uh, they recapture her. Uh, we have this, uh, truly awesome villainous moment where, uh, Jess Lee Alden, uh, tells her like, he basically like is, he's looking for Mansoor and it just so happens she works in a department that would actually deal with, with him. Um, so she gives him just a little tidbit of information and he, he says, he tells her straight up, like, I'm not going to kill you. Um, and then there's an exchange between him and his, uh, main henchman played by Lee Charles, uh, by the way, who is a frequent collaborator with Scott Atkins, uh, meaning they've hit each other in at least five different films. (laughs) Um, they speak French to each other in front of her. It's not subtitled by the way, uh, at least in the cuts of the film I've seen. Um, and he, he, like takes a minute uh, Hakim does and he just pauses and he says like he asked me if uh if I was going to kill you and he says no I'm not um but then of course he does the the bad guy thing of walking away and saying like uh, I didn't say anything about if he was going to kill you though uh so yeah he's going to do that now and uh, sure enough he does he shoots her straight in the fucking face um and then what follows is a uh, all the bad guys searching for Mansoor, of course, they can't find him because they're holed up in the back office, and so none, none of the goons can actually get back there. Um, and then what follows is approximately five minutes of Scott Atkins' uh, solid snaking people. 
uh, or naked snaking people, if you will, because uh, Solid Snake didn't get the knife until Metal Gear Solid 4. Uh, naked Snake, however, had that one uh, in Metal Gear Solid 3. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of Scott Adkins stabbing people. We also get a uh, trademark of uh, Tim Mann's uh, choreography uh, in the form of a two-on-one. I don't know what it is about Tim Mann, but um, as evidenced by uh, his uh, two-on-one fight with uh, Scott Adkins in a uh, Boyka Undisputed, that would be Undisputed 4. Um, man, uh, the guy really does have a knack for two-on-one choreography. Uh, something about the way he paces things out and, and his uh, eye for detail in terms of keeping all of the elements of the room occupied and moving. Um, it's it's pretty cool stuff. Here, it's uh, definitely scaled back quite a bit because, uh, again, uh, our, our, our takes in this movie are m- several minutes long. Uh, so we we can't keep we can't have things too complex we can't have things too lengthy because the potential for failure in the middle of a 10 minute take um is too high uh, but what we do get is quite nice and uh this i'm i always appreciate stabbing i'll just say that much i, I love me a good stabbing on film um anyway uh the next major beat though is that uh scott atkins reaches the comm room uh, however, uh, he doesn't quite know how to cal- calibrate the radio, or at least he's preoccupied with the fact that uh, he's been killing guys, he's probably tired, and oh yeah, there's another man with a rifle walking into the room shouting, where are you? I'm going to find you. Um, and uh, he has a little melee uh, with a with a fellow with a rifle. Um, he gets put in a bad spot where he, uh, Scott Atkins has a knife being pointed at his eye, uh, it doesn't look good for him. It's got some nasty Private Ryan vibes here. Um, but thankfully, uh, Ryan Phillippe, who, by the way, uh, our heroes had been communicating with via like a webcam earlier, um, and we did see that he was uh, doing his best to hold his ground on the other end of the base in one of the other offices. Um, he arrives on the scene to to shoot uh, this, this fella in the head and save Scott Adkins, and then uh, very handily calibrates the radio uh, it, like much faster than Scott Adkins could have. Um, so this is what I was alluding to when I said, uh, you know that uh, dress uniform you saw him in in that photo with his wife, who, by the way, apparently was killed in 9-11, which is why Ryan Phillippe's character is so ornery uh, about, you know, dirty bombs in D.C. and uh, the idea of preventing things like that happening. Um, to me, the dress uniform is a way of, like, hand-waving away, like, any of his like weapons training and stuff. It's like, ah, he he was fucking ex Marine or whatever. He knows what he's doing. Um, but yeah, he saves Scott Atkins and, uh, he fixes the, the comm array. Uh, he calls out for help and it'll be 30 minutes before we can get a chopper down here. Uh, so Scott Atkins, uh, makes a, uh, a decoy of himself, um, by running out into the yard with an AK 47 and just making a fucking racket. Uh, So he shoots some bad guys um, and then hides among a series of trucks. And uh, the bad guys lose track of him. Um, And then, holy shit, what what follows next is yet another one of those moments. Uh, So we've already had at least two of those in the form of uh, Ash's death and uh, Hakim's introduction, uh, shooting all all of the uh, all the prisoners. Um, Another one of these sequences that just like really 
made my eyes go wide and realize like oh shit like this is a fucking movie like like this is a fucking film uh with some some of that acting shit going on and uh this this is the kind of stuff that like makes the difference between you know a pure just like straight up action movie and like an actual legitimately pretty good like well like thoughtful and well constructed film um and this this certainly qualifies as one so the sequence that i'm alluding to here um i've been referring to in my mind or in my cell phone notes as a uh, adamat's march um so amongst the bad guys um amongst these terrorists uh who i believe are supposed to be like french algerian or something i'm not positive it's never it's never explicitly stated i, I don't think but um anyway uh amongst their ranks uh there's there's one fellow who continually sticks out in that uh hakim is pretty rough on him and is like occasionally like kind of snapping his fingers in front of his face and trying to get him to pay attention and whatnot um and in addition to that uh he also just has kind of a dopey look about him like he looks out of place i mean he was very well cast in that regard because just from a visual standpoint uh he he looks out of place he looks younger he looks more innocent he he doesn't look as comfortable carrying a rifle as the other fellows do and by the way um all the majority of the bad guys in this film are wearing um like balaclavas turbans uh masks ball caps anything to cover their face because you know this movie was shot in 20 days on a very low budget i would not be surprised if each and every one of these guys gets killed by scott adkins about five times each um, so in terms of like actual faces uh, to the villains, uh, we only have a handful to work from. One of which is like Gingerbeard Man with the ball with the turban, uh, Hakim, uh, of course the inimitable Lee Charles, who good fucking god, he's enormous. He stands out in a crowd. Even if you put a funny hat on him, he'd only stand out more. Um, but in addition to those, you also have this uh, Automat character, uh, who again looks very innocent. So we have this moment where. Uh, Hakim is realizing, huh, so they're holed up in that back office, huh? Well, uh, how do we get through that? Well, uh, we've lost a lot of people, like, just throwing bodies into the line of fire. Um, maybe we should rethink this. And it's my understanding that the only reason this is happening now instead of right away is that Hakim was just busy. Like, he just wasn't at that corner of the base so it's only just now that he's getting there so it's only just now that the leader um is being brought to the the location where they know the prisoner is being held um so this whole sequence uh, again what i've been referring to is automat's march here um basically involves hakim having like a brief moment of speaking french with uh, lee charles's character his right hand man um and it's just decided on the spot it's like well I know what to do. So he says, bring, bring Automat. Uh, so he, he like puts his arm around his shoulder. He puts his arm around the, the shoulder of this kid and uh, walks him out to a grassy part of the base. And uh, all, all of these other armed men are walking behind him as well. And uh, everything about uh, the way Hakim is comporting himself suggests like both confidence, but like there's moments where he pulls ahead of the group and uh only the camera can see his his facial expression and whatnot where you can see that there is there is a measure of conflict in him um, but he's not allowing it to be made visible uh, to the people around him but 
basically he says it's your time now Adamat. like the, uh, it's your great opportunity like your great reward is waiting for you in the afterlife and, and he he like asks Adamat, do you remember all the pledges you took to join our ranks and whatnot do you remember like how cool it is to sacrifice yourself for the cause and Adamat's just like sheepishly nodding along to it um and at one point i love this bit where uh one of the one of the other like faceless goons among them actually just like while hakim is speaking with adama just like takes adama's rifle from him no words exchange he just like takes his weapon from me he, he disarms him in 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 many ways essentially um but it doesn't take a genius to figure out where this is leading uh they walk Adamant out to this this grassy patch and all the dudes like all the goons like all the terrorists they encircle him um and start shouting his name like cheering him on and uh hakeem has this really beautiful moment that it's again i i was not expecting this from from a, a former professional athlete slash fighter um it's kind of a toss-up what you're going to get in terms of acting ability from from people with that background but uh, he has this moment where he he like calls off all the shouting, and he he grabs the the nape of Anamat's head as they're placing a uh, like a bomb vest on him, like a, a plastic explosive bomb vest around him. And also he slips him some sort of drug. I'm not positive what it might be, but I would imagine it's something that makes you euphoric and uh, more able to embrace the idea of blowing yourself to smithereens. Uh, but he grabs him by the nape of his neck and uh, he puts his forehead to his and he sheds a tear it, in in the middle of this like 10 minute take. So it's like he just he just fucking did that. Um, and he just tells him straight up, it's time. Let's go. Uh, so they have this long march back to the office where Mansoor is being held. And uh, much like we did with Hakim, with him being positioned in front of the camera to show his earnest feelings like his like to show that he's you know he's not he i mean he is a monster but but uh you see that like he has conflict like he 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 does acknowledge the fact that this is kind of fucked up what he's doing um very similar to that we have a moment where adamat is positioned that way in front of the camera and he's he's no longer being pulled along by the group he's like walking out in front of the group um and nobody's touching him or anything but it's like you he's he's in complete agony and he's he's tearing up his his face is just scrunched up like he can tell he he's not terribly enthused about the idea of blowing himself up for whatever cause this might be for um but it's just a really incredible moment that carries a lot of emotional weight to it um but yeah uh hakeem walks him to the the hallway uh the killing grounds essentially where the seals have just been chewing up the goons for the past 20 minutes um and he tosses a flashbang in there um and starts setting them up to to get the suicide bomber aka automat uh down the hallway uh to to blow through the barricade that the seals have put up um and there's a really incredibly edited sequence here where um there's a serious argument going on between all the major players in the back office so uh, ryan Philippi is real pissed off and he used the same air vent to get back into the office as scott Hadkins has used had used to leave um so he's threatening to torture Mansoor further uh, to find out where the dirty bomb might be stored or where it may have been placed um in addition to that uh tom shields uh, aka terrence maynard the actor um is kind of going along with it as well meanwhile 
uh, Zoe Anderson uh, is trying and failing uh, to back get them to back down. Scott Atkins is telling everybody to shut the fuck up. Um, in the midst of this, uh, our one of our seals, Danny Dietler, the one who had gotten shot in the head earlier, uh, gets shot in the throat. Um, and while uh, Emmanuel Imani, as a uh, Brandon Whitaker, uh, goes to attend to goes to attend to the wound, he gets shot in the back of the head. And Scott Adkins is at the forefront of the conflict and doesn't even see this happen. It's only because Ryan Phillippe calls out to him and tells him, hey, uh, your boys are dead, uh, that he even becomes aware of that. So we have this wonderful sequence where the the camera is gliding back and forth between all these arguing parties. There's people dying in the midst of this sequence. Um, And then on top of that, we've been separated from Adamat, the boy wearing the suicide vest, for a few minutes at this point. Um, And I really love the choice uh, to have uh, his appearance in the hallway uh, when it comes time for him to finally, you know, release the trigger for the device to detonate it um instead of like going back to his perspective uh, we stay in the room with all the heroes Uh, so the last thing we see before the detonation is a the terrorist charging down the hallway using uh like steel plated sheets uh as barricades like as as shields essentially from the incoming gunfire and we just see one of the sheets fall down and we see adama like at a distance running at scott adkins who is shooting at him with a pistol and uh he does kill him he kills him to death in fact he shoots him like five six times but it it's not enough because uh, he automat collapses against the barricade and again i agree with this choice of having it just be this sudden moment where it's like we've had enough time like to to become intimate with with the construction of this person's silhouette in their face like we'll know them when they see them um and sure enough when he runs out he eats several bullets to the fucking face um and then he collapses against the barricade and the entire hallway comes down uh which results in one of the very few explicit and noticeable cuts in the film uh which is of course you know the traditional war movie trope of the e the the ringing in the ears effect uh, basically, the entire room gets blown open, uh, so everything's shattered. Like all the props are strewn about. Uh, there's dust everywhere. Um, a large portion of the cast is injured and or dead at this point. And uh, the sequence goes on for several minutes. Um, realist, which is very realistic. Honestly, it's like um, it doesn't feel like it drags because, in all honesty, if 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 a room gets blown up like that, it's like I don't want to see Scott Adkins like jump up to his feet right away it's like i if you're going to adhere to this this thesis of one shot of of having the story play out in real time then you need sequences like this to take their time because otherwise it'll it'll break the illu- it it won't help to maintain the illusion uh so yeah uh scott atkins does manage to get to his feet and we see that uh everyone else is severely injured um Tom Shields is pinned under a desk. Ryan Phillippe is unconscious on the ground. Uh, I think we're led to believe he's dead at this point. He's not. Spoiler alert. Um, However, uh, Zoe Anderson, uh, she is most certainly on her way to death uh, as she has been impaled uh, with a splinter of wood in her midsection. Uh, It's at this point that she completely spills the beans here uh, about the nature of the ultrasound. Now, um, 
I'm not entirely certain why this information was held back until now, but uh, apparently the story behind this ultrasound is that uh, that wasn't hers. Uh, that actually belongs to Mansoor's wife, uh, who, uh, as we'll learn later on in the film, he claims to have not seen in months. Um, but as it so happens, the timelines line up, so it it is indeed his progeny. That is his son, yet to be born, um, which is, of course, an opportunity for him to have a new beginning, uh, as he had previously lost a son, so this is a, his chance to have a new one and live a new life, potentially. Um, but at this point in the story, he is not aware of this. I'm not entirely sure why she just didn't make that known. Maybe she was trying to find a more intimate setting to relay that information to him. Um, as needs to be said, uh, this actor, Walid El-Ghadi, um, I feel for this man. Uh, because holy shit, he, uh, every scene he's in, every bit of dialogue he, he has, he is just in emotion. He is in, he's like a, I don't know, like a, a shivering little puppy like like he is just so beat down and just he is an emotional wreck um he gives it his all in this movie um he has some really incredible moments where he is shedding all manner of tears he is exasperated uh his character's put through the ringer um and he he really put a lot of work into selling that um but anyway uh she does pass away but she does hand off the ultrasound to scott atkins and tells him uh you gotta sh- you like I was holding this off for whatever reason, but uh, getting Mansoor to spill the beans about where the dirty bomb is going or where it's at uh, is our only chance to prevent disaster. So you you just need to show this to him and convince him uh, that it's a good idea to co- to cooperate. Um, so he exits via the vent um, and just in time because a Hakim and all the bad guys uh, come into the back office and Hakim executes uh, Tom Shields. Uh, I know <laughs> Hakim has this awesome moment, this uh, just several minute tirade as he's exiting the building and the, the camera's following behind him. It's a, it's a lovely camera angle. I don't know why it's so entrancing, but like there's been a long stretch of movies these days with uh, these long tracking shots of, of like behind the back shots, like following following like pivotal characters in the story from behind um but it's just him for like several minutes just like i don't understand a lick of french but i understand i understand merde 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 <laughs> like i understand that much and he is like to to quote die hard <laughs> that man is really pissed <laughs> it's like yeah uh, that french man is very pissed uh, because mansoor is not here and not only that he discovers his uh his uh like handcuffs essentially uh have been discarded so he's able to move freely now uh, so he's pissed um and then uh finally after more than an hour of movie uh, we actually cut to mansoor's perspective for a bit and we get to see him do some uh pacifist solid snaking in the form of uh stealthily sneaking around the grounds and uh he by the way he's wearing like prisoner like orange jumpsuit um so he tries to put on uh, a a corpse's uh outfit by the way this is one of those things i'm sure as an actor um would it would make me nervous like having to undress a person and uh, very quickly like do a wardrobe change in front of the camera during a like 10 minute take or something 
it's like man what if like you i don't know you put you put it on backwards or like you put your leg down the wrong pant leg or something like i'd be so embarrassed like i don't i don't i'm not very coordinated when it comes to things like that i'd be very nervous about doing that but he actually uh puts on a corpse's outfit to try to blend in um and escape uh in plain sight but of course uh, Lee Charles, who can only be involved in a movie of this nature for one reason, and that would, of course, be not just for shooting. I mean, every, I mean, anybody can shoot a gun. That's not true. Like, it takes training to look good shooting a camera, shooting a gun on camera. Um, but Lee Charles, who is, of course, a uh, multi—I I think he was a like multiple-time like kickboxing champion or something the reason he's in your film is to throw hands especially with scott adkins who as i had mentioned previously has done this with this fella at least five times Uh, so of course we go uh back into the prisoner holding area so lee charles can have a fucking throwdown uh (laughs) with scott adkins and it's pretty fucking tight um by the way uh any anybody who's in the in the mood for like an ultra violent gangster show um Please, 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 by all means, check out Gangs of London. Um, been watching it with a girlfriend. I've had the Blu-ray sitting on my shelf for like a year now. I'm very excited to hear that there's a second season. But holy shit, it had been on my to-do list for far too long. Um, and I've just been enjoying the hell out of it. And uh, what's more, it made me very, very happy uh, to see Lee Charles in that show. Uh, he's only in one episode. <laughs> Um, but holy shit, uh, his, his contribution, uh, was, was immense. Um, I'll say that much, uh, his, his one major scene in gangs of London, like in addition to his body of work, uh, across many, many other films as a, as a heavy of sorts, uh, the man, the man is, the man is a a personal favorite of mine. I, I delight every time I see him largely because he's, he sticks out like a sore thumb. You, you see him coming a mile away. And every time I see him, I, I give my girlfriend a little elbow nudge and just be like, oh, he's going <laughs> to, that guy's going to get hit or he's going to hit somebody. And sure enough, every time it happens. Um, but yeah, uh, we have this wonderful, wonderful brief sequence between Lee Charles and Scott Atkins, uh, largely uh, barehanded, but there is a bit where Scott Atkins charges at him with a knife and it's deflected with a rifle. Uh, there's a combination of grappling and striking here. At one point, Scott Atkins is choked with a chain, but, um, I mean, it's no surprise, a guy the size of Lee Charles in a movie like this that actually does attempt to have some element of realism to it, uh, it's no surprise that the the final blow of the fight doesn't come in the form of, like, punches or wheel kicks or anything like that. There's no Giver kicks in one shot, as much as, you know, we all would love to see that from Scott Atkins in virtually anything he does. Uh, No, the finishing blow is delivered by... Uh, a pistol shot uh, to the leg and then two to the face uh, so uh, he is not physically overpowered by Scott Atkins he is subdued via a handgun because we're not playing we're not trying to look fancy while we're killing people we're just trying to fucking kill people because at the end of the day Scott Atkins has lost basically all of his friends like the his entire SEAL team is dead people that uh, as evidenced by their interactions earlier in the film uh, seem to be very tight with him on a personal level in addition to being quote co-workers um but also he saw a young woman die before his very eyes and uh presumably he he's under the assumption the other agents are dead as well so it comes down to him uh and mansoor and the potential for uh, a horrible disaster in washington dc but uh what follows uh is a incredible sequence where 
Scott Adkins, uh, now that he's subdued Lee Charles, um, is in hot pursuit of Mansoor. So he's he sees him. He runs out uh, to a part of the base, um, trying to chase him down. But every every time he thinks he's like got him locked down, and like at one point he actually grabs hold of him and it's like providing cover fire for Mansoor. Every time he does that. Uh, Mansoor takes off like a fucking squirrel and runs off to a different part of the base. Uh, and Scott Adkins is so desperate at this point that he's like breaking cover willingly, uh, willfully, and putting himself in harm's way just to keep up. And again, the the choreography of the camera work here is astounding because we're jumping back and forth between subjects that we're we're focusing on. So we have Scott Adkins uh, performing complex uh, like firearm choreography um and then whenever appropriate the focus to the shot will will jump uh to Mansoor uh and him kind of like leapfrogging away from Scott Atkins's character um and what follows is essentially like a, a several minute sequence where Scott Atkins both with an AK-47 and a Glock um <laughs> I was referring to this in my mind as uh, his audition for John Wick 4 which uh I think it was not too not too long before the the official release of this film that that was actually confirmed that uh he was he was working on john wick 4 or at least it was publicly disclosed anyway uh but the construction of this scene uh very much feels akin to a john wick albeit on a on a different scale um and with a different style of intensity to it like there's no uh tyler bates score like pulsing over this it's mostly just uh scott adkins grunting uh struggling to to catch his breath uh eating bullets from time to time and uh shooting people in the face in creative ways um, it's a really deftly constructed and choreographed sequence and again the the jumping back and forth between following he and mansoor is very very effective and is in so so beautifully storyboarded i can't stress that enough about the construction of this film the amount of planning uh that had to go into assembling this movie and and shooting it uh again in 20 days like i th- i think the director himself uh stated this where uh one of the major difficulties and there are so many of them uh, when it comes to putting together a movie in this fashion uh is that there's always there's always like a a need or a want uh, to attempt to improvise or attempt to find a solution or a, or a, a a different approach uh to a sequence um by changing it up on the day of or something like especially in terms of like action choreography and whatnot it's like you can previs and stuff but sometimes you know there's there's certain bits where maybe your performer's injured or maybe the rhythm just doesn't quite match or maybe the intensity level feels like it's taking a dip because of the way it was conceived in pre-visualization or something sometimes you need to call an audible and switch things up but because of the nature of this film uh, apparently the there was very little wiggle room it's basically we need to do it as as we as we stated we we're going to do it otherwise it won't the main the illusion will not be maintained and we just won't be able to put the thing together the way it's meant to be uh, so this is very much a, the kind of thing that had to be planned in advance and executed as such um and by god they uh they really did a wonderful job of planning it because the end result, if you ask me, is is incredible. Um, and then the incredibleness uh, continues uh, into a, what is essentially, again, in video game turns, uh, our final boss battle, 
Uh, so Scott Adkins has killed all the people. He also did a, a trailer-worthy moment where he uh, jumped out of a building just as it was being exploded by a grenade. That's pretty cool. In fact, I think that was a snapshot they used for the uh, the wallpaper of the uh, Amazon Prime rental page for this film. As uh, Scott Adkins flying out of an exploding window, uh, you know, not a not a bad still to use. <laughs> um, but uh, the final boss battle um, actually feels a little bit like. Uh, like uh, the conclusion of the first Die Hard. Um, in fact, I think uh, James Nunn in an interview uh, did make mention of Hans Gruber uh, when he was talking about what they needed, what they were hoping for from from their villain. Um, uh, he, he works in action cinema. I would hope he's seen Die Hard. But Mansoor is uh, confronted by Hakim and a couple of other terrorists. And uh, very quickly, without hesitation, Hakim shoots Mansoor in the chest uh, and he drops like a fucking bag of potatoes. But um, from behind Hakim, uh, Scott Atkins charges out from the smoke, of which there's quite a bit because there have been explosions and whatnot going on. Um, and he uses uh, one of the other terrorists as a human shield to get up close to Mansoor, uh, or rather Hakim, uh, who shoots this fella, this other terrorist, multiple times with a rifle. Um, and then Scott Atkins gets up close, and uh, we have... Uh, uh, basically a, a wrestling match essentially uh, it's a jujitsu slash wrestling it's a grappling competition essentially like there are strikes involved in fact uh, Hakim pulls out a knife almost immediately um, and I mean this this man was a professional fighter so this uh, Jess Lialdin um, the intensity he puts on display in his movements and the intent uh, behind behind the movements uh, it all it all comes across as like Scott, uh, it's like maybe you weren't worried on the set, but just like watching the playback of these scenes, it's like I, I you know, I was kind of worried he was gonna like, I don't know, potato you pretty bad, like just like get get like flip out on you and just like punch you in the fucking head or something. Um, but no, it's it's a very deftly constructed sequence. Uh, like I said, there's strikes, uh, there's a knife involved at one point, uh, but for the most part, it's more of a. a a semi-realistic like wrestling or, or like grappling match at one point uh scott adkins is pinned to the ground and instead of breaking away from him to go for the knife which the the camera actually like makes readily apparent that the knife is like six feet away uh just Lee just like kind of cradles him under him and uses his body weight to prevent scott adkins from being able to to explode out from under him and he continually shuffles them closer and closer to this knife at which point the action breaks for a minute so we can uh, discover that Mansoor is not dead uh, because we did have a moment that I didn't highlight where uh, Ashley Green uh, gave him her Kevlar vest, uh, which saved him uh, from being shot to death. Um, but we follow him for a bit and we see that he's making a move uh, for the gate. Uh, so he's he's still intent on fleeing uh, the island. So I, I maybe there's a boat uh, out there that he can use i mean they did use a boat or a ship rather uh to you to bring the the truck in uh that housed all the terrorists so yes there is a there is a boat dock there so we never see it but yes there is a way off the island anyway he's making a move for the gate at which point we cut back to scott atkins and uh justly out and uh, going at it on the ground uh scott atkins managed to to uh, gain control of the knife and we have a uh, private ryan-esque moment where uh scott atkins plunges the knife directly into the center of jesse Alden's throat uh and yes kills him 
Um, which leads to the final confrontation of the film, uh, which is, of course, between Scott Adkins and uh, Mansoor. And this is where he pulls out that key prop in the form of that uh, ultrasound. And it takes quite a bit of convincing, but uh, he finally gets him to believe that, yes, that is, in fact, his son, and there's a possibility of him being reunited with his family, and he can start fresh, provided... He cooperate, and they leave together on a chopper to stop the bomb in D.C. Um, and just when he's getting Mansoor to, to come around, Ryan Phillippe shows up, dragging one leg behind him. So he's, he's hobbled, but he's armed. He has a handgun with him, and he's pissed. Uh, so just in time uh, to make things really rough and ugly, um, we have this moment where Scott Adkins is sandwiched between both men, Mansoor and Ryan Phillippe. By the way, uh, both men are armed, and both men are very angry at him. So he's like going back and forth trying to get both of these dudes to calm down. And at the end of the day, you know what What saves the day, what saves Washington, D.C.? is jujitsu. Uh, because Scott Adkins tries to talk down Ryan Phillippe, but eventually uh, it comes down to him just snatching the handgun from him and <laughs> dragging him to the ground and putting him in some sort of lock. Like an, arm, like an arm bar of sorts. He drapes his leg over his throat and he wrestles the handgun from him. So it's not necessarily that he convinces Ryan Phillippe of, of, what him, of, of this plan being the correct course of action. It's more he physically just like forces him to the ground and says, God damn it, we're doing this. Um, fortunately, it seems to be the case that, that this is the right course of action. Um, and Walid El Ghadi uh, has his Oscar moment here, where he is—he just has this moment where there's a there's a a beat, and he he is just completely destroyed. Like like it, he's in shambles. He's covered in dirt. His his face is swollen. He's he's covered in cuts and bruises, and he just has this line that I really enjoyed. His delivery in particular, where he just says, "I I don't know what to believe anymore because there's just been so much." so much horse shit going on today and i'm really stressed out um but as i said this this movie does have a mostly happy ending uh in the form of him agreeing to go with scott atkins on the helicopter and then one of the last images we get is a uh, ryan Phillippe laying on the ground uh insistent on catching the next chopper instead of getting on the same chopper with them so i guess that shows that um he's still him like he hasn't like turned a new page entirely like he's he's still holding to his principles um be they correct or not um but he's just like slouched on the ground and as i said he was chewing nicorette earlier and there was a line of dialogue pointing out that he had recently quit smoking which is one of many reasons why he's ornery um but he just casually pulls out a cigarette and lights it up so it's just like yeah you know at the end of that kind of day uh, even i would probably have a smoke and i've never smoked in my life but um the last image we get is uh, him looking up into the sky, and uh, we 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 keep to the thesis uh, through the end of the film. So with the exception of that one explosion moment where it's like hard not to think of that as like an obvious cut, uh, the movie carries through with that by having the last image be a tilt up from him uh, looking up into the sky and watching uh, the helicopter housing Scott Atkins and Mansoor uh, away presumably to DC to stop the dirty bomb um, but yeah uh, that was uh, one shot directed by James Nunn 
Um, I hope I said everything I had intended to because I thoroughly enjoy this movie. Like I said, I've seen it twice now. I could totally see myself watching it a third time, uh, especially if that's the only way I can get one of my friends to watch it uh, because I really do think it's an exceptional action film. Um, I do think there are some legitimately incredible acting moments um, and scripted moments as well. Uh, that scene with Adamat and the and the bombing uh, really caught me off guard. Um, in addition to that, uh, Jesse Alden's uh, performance as an actor, not just as a physical performer, but just as a straight-up actor, um, he has screen presence, and um, I don't think the I don't think the language. I don't think the language is a barrier. I think it's an asset, honestly. Uh, his accent um, really, really worked out well. In fact, I believe uh, he was asked to just perform in his natural accent um, as opposed to trying to put on an affect or something. Um, but I, I was really impressed by him. And, of course, always happy to see Lee Charles uh, throw hands with anybody, especially Scott Adkins, uh, who, by the way, I don't even think I mentioned it because I always, th- I always think of Scott Adkins as Scott Adkins. Like, uh, he's just one of those guys that's just like, I, I'm not going to lie, a lot of times when I watch his movies, be they good or bad, um, I'm, I'm usually there. I'm usually showing up for him, so it really doesn't matter who he's playing, like what their name is, but the character's name was Jake Harris. Um, always happy to see Scott Adkins in anything and this uh this is one of his one of his better films overall I'll just say that much I'm not sure if it would be the first one I would I would put in front of somebody if they're curious about checking out his filmography but it would be one of the first um and probably one of the more approachable ones because um I I understand not everybody is as excited by martial arts on film as I am um but, you know, I, I think this is actually legitimate, just like well-constructed film in general. So, yeah, this would probably be one of, one of the big ones that I, I would put in front of people if I was to introduce them to him. But, by the way, uh, call back to uh, one, of, one of my early ramblings on this episode. Uh, Zero Tolerance uh, was the name of that Thai production um, that I could not remember featuring... Um, uh, Scott Adkins and I think Kane Kosugi was in there, but I don't see his name here on on the credits. So I think it was uh, Dustin Wen, uh, and apparently Gary Daniels is in there. But yeah, it's my understanding that uh, Scott Adkins and Dustin Wen uh, were just kind of like brought in at the last minute to sell that, um, as opposed to like being involved with the project from from day one. Um, anyway, not a big deal. <laughs> At some point, I will see all of J- of Scott Adkins' film, but that's a work in progress. Anyway, as I said, this is uh, One Shot from 2021, directed by James Nunn. Um, but in the meantime, folks at home, if you'd like to catch up on any of our other Catching Up on Cinema content, you can find all of that collected on our website at Catching Up on Cinema. Uh, and we are available on the social medias in the form of the Twitter, at Catching Cinema. Uh, as well as the Instagram at Catching Up on Cinema. So feel free to hit me up at either of those. Um, and uh, yeah, I forgot the rest of the spiel, so I'm just going to make a hasty retreat here and say goodnight to y'all. So um, anyway, thanks so much for listening, and we will catch you next time. Mm-hmm.